0: Welcome back to Call Time with Katie Birdenbaum. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Megan Fairchild last week. I know I was fangirling the whole time, but I'm really excited to have a guest today on the other end of the spectrum. I've been wanting to get more playwrights on the show for a long time since the success of my episode with my dear friend Natalie Margolin. So, I'm going to be chatting today with an amazing playwright Andy Bragan. Let me do a little intro into who Andy is before we begin and before I bring him in for those who may not be familiar. Andy grew up in New York City, like me, so we'll have a lot to talk about, and a lot of his plays touch on that theme. He got his MFA from Brown University. As a playwright, he's been honored with workspace and process space residencies from the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council. The Clubbed Thumb Biennial Commission, the Tennessee Williams Fellowship from Sewanee, the University of the South, the New Voices Fellowship from the Ensemble Studio Theater, a Dramatist Guild Fellowship, and a Berkeley Rep Ground Floor Residency. His plays include *The Harry Dutchman*. I'm going to butcher this, but *Spuyten Doivel What language is that in?
1: Uh, I think it's Spuyten but it could go either way. It's old Dutch, I think.
0: Love it, love it. Game, set, match, and this is my office, which received a Drama Desk nomination for Best Solo Performance. He often collaborates with jazz saxophonist and composer John Ellis, and he's taught at many universities, including where he teaches now at Barnard College. And he also recently started his own theater company, so we will have a lot to discuss. So without further ado, even though I've asked him questions as I've been introducing Andy Bregan, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. So glad to be here.
0: I'm so happy you're here and that we could get connected. Is there anything, first of all, in your bio that's major that I missed? You know, this is cobbled together from your website and various other things.
1: Yes. Well, let's see. I was, I guess, uh, two things. I was a member of New Dramatists. I'm an alum of New Dramatists, which is a wonderful organization. And uh, my play, Notes of My Mother's Decline, was the most recent uh, play which I had up. And this is my office, and notes are it, are published together right now. So that, those are the main things.
0: And that's what—that's how I Andy was kind enough before we did this interview to send over, you know, the book. I have it right here, and we got connected through New Dramatists. So there you go. I want to start at the beginning, Andy—a very good place to start. And something I'm curious about when I have playwrights on the show is this question of like, did theater come first or did writing come first? How did how did your interest in these, in these dual passions come to be?
1: I think that uh, a little of both. I think in terms of something I was doing, writing probably came first before theater. But I went to a lot of theater as a child. My mother, who taught at Baruch College, was a member of Theater Development Fund, or TDF. So we used to go see a lot of plays when I was a kid ranging from, you know, I think one of the original American Buffalo productions to True West to uh, Moose Murders, which is the worst reviewed show ever on Broadway. So all sorts of, all sorts of plays, musicals, all sorts of stuff on and off Broadway when I was a kid.
0: And was there, can you think of like a light bulb moment you had when you saw something and you were like that's what I want to do or did that come later? I
1: think that came later. I think it came in college that I started writing a little bit. I was acting a little bit and Tina Howe the playwright came down to the college I was at to do a sort of to help put on some new plays and they didn't have enough uh, parts for women in those plays so I wrote a monologue that was loosely based on my uh, hypochondriac grandmother and her Life in Mississippi, and I guess uh, when her husband shot himself in the foot, which uh, wasn't actually true, but might as well have been because it was a pretty crazy family down there. But so I got to watch that monologue get staged, and that's what really hooked me is seeing a piece I'd written performed.
0: And it seems like you return to the monologue form or variations on the monologue quite a bit. Is that something you see in yourself? Is that sort of self conscious? Would you identify with that statement?
1: I I probably would now. I didn't write monologues for a long time. I think This Is My Off came out that way, and after that I've done a couple of them. But mostly before that I've been writing plays with anywhere from, you know, four to eight characters, and I've been writing some of both. So I've been moving back and forth between the forms, and I think it's been an interesting form for me, though. I've been playing with it some more.
0: You wrote somewhere, I believe on your website talking about your theater company that you're interested in formally innovative, making formally innovative theater. So what does that mean to you and how did that, how did you become interested in that?
1: I think not, not to get too academic about it, but this idea of, uh, I think it's a Paul Vogel. Please
0: get academic.
1: I'll try a little bit. I may not be able to help it, but as a Paul Vogel idea, the relationship between the container and the thing contained this idea of like how a play, the form of a play affects the content and, and vice versa. So how you structure it. So I guess that's something I thought about a lot in terms of what is the, the container of each play. And so some plays might go backwards or some plays you know, it's not they're just different ways to tell stories and, and thinking about that and thinking about both where play is set and the the sort of box in which it's in, as opposed to sort of a kind of straightforward linear play. It's just the way I think it's how I my mind works and how I approach writing
0: yeah it's really interesting when when i had a a different playwright on months ago we were talking about the difference between writing for tv and writing for theater because as i'm sure you know so many playwrights are now jumping ship and uh, writing for tv or film and she was saying she found the that scarier because tv and film she was like you can you can be anywhere you could you could literally set it anywhere and have it do anything whereas she said she found something comforting about a play being this sort of like self-contained thing so it's interesting that you use the word container because i i, I wouldn't necessarily think that do you have any interest speaking of in in doing TV or film, or is it all theater all the time for you?
1: I mean, I poked around a little bit in that. I had a play that got optioned, and I did a little bit of work on that. But So I think it's interesting. I love film. But I think that in terms of my life, I love being in New York City, and so mm-hmm. I'm not looking to sort of live out there, and I'm not sure I'm willing, perhaps, to put in the the hours and the hustle and the work and the multiple pilots you need to write to, to get good enough and to get the work from in television and film. So I, I make my living teaching right now at, at Barnard and NYU Tisch. So, so far so good
0: but there's major hustle. I mean, this was something I was going to get to later. In all careers in the arts, it seems like there's there has to be hustle and there has to be this like self-motivating motor within you. But particularly it seems to me with playwrights because it just is so crazy to me and so not talked about like how do you how do you even accomplish these things? So, what was your career trajectory like thus far? I mean, you say now that you make your living teaching Obviously, that was not true when you just got out of college or just got out of the MFA. So how, how did that path work for you?
1: Well, yeah, I had a kind of winding path. I got out of college and I came back here and I worked for this very small travel company that was selling standby or space available tickets and then I started my own little business I was running out of my apartment so I had this little weird little travel agency that paid the bills while I was also writing and then I gave that up I gave that to my father who was sort of retiring he took it over and at that point I guess I was I was still living pretty cheaply down here I had a good place to live and I got in some good housing and then I went to grad school in my early 30's up at Brown and I think coming out of Brown, my thought was that, oh, if this is a really prestigious program, I'm suddenly going to make it or whatever that means. And of course, that's a, a kind of fantasy or a, a not true. What does it mean to make it? You're, you really are just trying to build a life in it. So I didn't, you know, I had a couple commissions, a fellowship or two. But it ultimately, that wasn't like, that wasn't a sustainable path. is the only way to make a living. And so teaching is something I got more into and, and along the way I guess you know I had a couple of plays done I had a play done before I went to grad school and uh, then a couple a lot of readings and workshops after and smaller things and then after this is my office was produced in 2013. that was something that was really I was very satisfied with it Davis McCallum directed it we had this site-specific or sort of non-theater space we were working and I was really thrilled with what we did and I said to myself like well how often am I gonna get an opportunity to do this with a great company like The Play Company, with a director and artistic team that I love. And I think the reality is you don't actually get those opportunities and get those pieces in place that often, especially if you're waiting on someone to give you permission. So I think that's what motivated me to start my own company because I, I had an artistic vision. I had people I wanted to work with. And so I wanted to figure out ways to do that for myself. And so that, with two productions now, a play called Don't You Fucking Say a Word in 2016, and then Notes, which was a co-production with the play company, I think I've been able to realize more or less, as hard as it is, it's exhausting and difficult and the finances are hard and everything is hard. But artistically, it's been really very satisfying to take that path.
0: Yeah, so talk to me about that. I mean, I think it's very rare that playwrights start their own theater companies on top of everything and I saw in your mission statement that you talked about a disappointment with the direction the theater industry is moving that you said more theaters are focused on administration almost to the exclusion of the production of art and artists. Can you talk a little bit more about that or where you see the industry moving?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I I would just say that for an institution to survive, they have to put a lot of money towards a lot of other things, including their education departments, grant writing, all of that. And these are not bad things. I'm all for theater education, but I do think that, you know, with some of these larger institutions, there's a lot of work that has to be put towards overhead and you lose track. They they can't even afford to produce that many plays right now per year, so there are a lot of great writers out there, and groups like The Pool, for example, they're producing their own work right now, and a lot of writers out of the avant-garde, Young Jean Lee, other, other people. I find that when they can take the opportunity, when writers can take the opportunity to say, hey, I, I, I know what I want to do. I have a basic sense of what it needs, and I'm really focusing simply on putting a play up as opposed to all of the sort of extra pieces that it takes to be an ongoing institution, I I think at least interesting places. And I should add that, you know, a lot of these institutions do help out people who are working independently. So most of us have one foot in and one foot out of the institutions because they provide space sometimes and they provide infrastructure and, and they help out.
0: Right, right. Do you think the pandemic has changed? Any of these trends, like now that, first of all, are you working on anything new? Like what has your life been like post-pandemic? But also given this sense you have of the industry, do you feel that the time off in the pandemic has changed things? Or do you think everyone's just going back to the status quo kind of?
1: I really can't tell. I think there's some really interesting work and some artists being out there and some theaters that are really rethinking their their model and how they work with artists and the, the, who the artists are, who they're working with, and that's a really great thing. I can't tell. I think there's a question of where audience is coming from and mm. I guess there's a question of what theaters can't afford to do right now a little bit and that's both the larger theaters and also someone small like I mean I I sort of went to the woodshed during the pandemic and I did a lot of writing and I'm writing a book which I'm just finishing a, a sort of new draft of and uh, fiction uh non-fiction a kind of uh loose sort of I guess a family memoir and racial reckoning going with my my mother is from Mississippi and on that side of my family my father was Jewish from Boston my mother's from Mississippi, and on that side of the family, I have a lot of primary documents. So just trying to connect then to now and look at a lot of this family history. So I've been sort of deep inside that on, on the.
0: Wow. That's fascinating.
1: Um,
0: Talk to me. I mean, did you, cause you're a playwright, but now you're writing this nonfiction book. Are you always writing in different styles? Like, do you consider yourself a jack-of-all-trades kind of writer? Do you think someday you'll write a novel or a, a book of poetry or whatever it is? Or how did, how did this other segment of writing come to be for you?
1: Yeah, I think I hope I am. I hope that I'm not going to be sort of limiting myself in that regard. So mm-hmm. I like to write a novel. I mean, I think I'd like to think about it, especially as you know, theater's hard, I can't get all the plays I'm writing done, and I don't have the energy necessarily to fight for that, in some cases. So I'm trying a lot of different things. I mean, I've also been working on plays, and I have been, you know, thinking about whether I can do a new play right now. And the, the factors involved with that, you know, there are many. There's, like, finding the right artistic collaborators, finding a venue, finding, you know, how can I get it funded? And also, what where does the audience come from? So there are all these questions. And I think with the plays I did before, I felt like I'd answered a bunch of those questions before I moved towards production. And I think right mm-hmm. now there are a lot of questions post-pandemic. So in a way, right, working on a book and thinking about other artistic projects like that has been a great thing to be pursuing while I'm, you know, thinking about producing another play.
0: What's your process like? I'm sure you get asked this all the time.
1: Well, I don't know. It's like, I think it's really just about ass and chair. It's about putting in the time. I think that's really, in other words, I think tre- treating it more like a practice. In other words, I think that this idea that there will be good days and bad days, but I need to kind of keep at it. Uh, and each thing has been different. I mean, writing a book, you know, it's a lot, you know, plays are about distillation and writing a book is a lot more material. So it's kind of a almost brute force. I need to, find revising, I need to go through... 12 chapters. With a play I think I get something sparks me be it language or landscape and then I start writing some dialogue and it it, it slowly forms itself and I write I often write first drafts without character names and then sometimes I find out I know what the characters are. Not always I mean it depends on the kind of play it is but like the most recent play I wrote I did a draft without character names and I realized sort of what they were because there's a real sort of looseness of character in that play.
0: I noticed in Notes on My Mother's Decline, for example, it starts at the beginning, which is sort of the end, and then goes all through time, and then comes back to that moment, which is also the end. So with that play, is the order in which it's it, it now appears, the order in which you wrote it, or did you sort of piece things together as you went?
1: That one was written, I think there might have been, I might have moved one or two things, but mostly was written in that order. It was a very sort of intuitive play, and it it took a weirdly long time. I started it while my mother was alive. I think I I started the first pages right after this, my office had been up in the end of 2013, and I was just trying to, and I was trying to write both sides of the language at that point, and I cut out. I decided it should be one-sided, and then I wrote a first draft very quickly, I think in about two months even. But I didn't know the ending, and it didn't quite put together. It took me really years to figure that play out, partly because my mother was alive and actively declining, and I couldn't really see the ending of it until after she passed away. But otherwise, I think I was, so I was in it personally and emotionally, and the play is sort of a mixture of truth and fiction, and it needed a lot of time to kind of marinate for me to get to the, the kind of I don't know, a, a truth that was both honest and also loving in some ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned you're writing this book that's about your family history, and both of the plays, at least of yours that that I've read, are highly autobiographical and focus on your family. Is that a common theme in your writing, and do you... I mean, you said you you felt like you couldn't finish until your mother had actually passed away, this last one. Do you ever feel uncomfortable sharing so much of truth and your family's truth on the page and then eventually on the stage?
1: I mean, I think it all kind of, the language takes the lead, and at a certain point, the the words tell me what it is, and that and it moves away from truth. I mean, there's certainly a huge amount of truth in both those plays, and they are more autobiographical than most of what I've, I've written. But a lot of what I'm starting with, I mean, the, the play I just recently have been working on and finished is based, is set on, uh, sort of is about parents on the playground. It's a place I've spent a lot of time. My daughter's eight right now, and but I spent a lot of time when she was two and three and four and five, and, you know, there's a sort of really interesting kind of combination of people talking about utter banalities like toilet training or whatever and also sort of existential fear for the future which we all have right now so I'm really interested in the different registers there and so that play for example yes some of it is coming out of language I've heard some of it is coming out of my own sort of anxieties and banalities but it also feels both exposing and I'm hiding I'm also hiding behind the exposure in some way you put something forward for example with this is my office or notes and those are and aren't me so there there's an interesting and weird balance and in those cases those plays are explicitly versions of me even named Andy at various points and the other work doesn't do that but there is there is certainly a lot of personal elements and all of my work is quite personal.
0: Yeah, and, and so much about about family dynamics. I mean, there are to- obviously tons of plays <laughs> about family dynamics. Is that is that a topic you feel like you've now exhausted? Or do you feel like that's something to which you're going to be returning for the rest of your life?
1: You know, I, I, I go back and forth. I like to think I, I can take a little break from it. Because I've written some plays about groups of friends, too. And... I mean, I think I've maybe... I mean, it was cathartic to get those plays out of my system, I guess. So it does open up some new paths. And I will probably come back in some way to it, probably not as directly.
0: Well, and now you have a child. I mean, these past two plays are about your parents. And and this playground play sounds like it's not about your child, but about child rearing and how that changes things. So it's still about families, just like a different stage of, of family life which is interesting
1: I think that's right I think I mean the perspective of being a parent is is very different for me I think you know so much of my life I thought of myself as somebody's child or somebody's son and to think of oneself as a as a parent or a father I mean it's also being older it is a different way of seeing the world in some ways it feels a little less for me at least, I can't speak for others, it feels less narcissistic. It's less about me. It's more about someone else's future and thinking about what what will the world will be moving forward.
0: Well, isn't that like a huge reason why people have kids to just like not think about ourselves all day, every day? At least that's how I see it at this moment in my late 20s. But yeah, we'll see. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I This other playwright I interviewed also was saying that she feels like they're only like, you know, four stories in the world that anyone ever tells and then we just recycle those stories in different ways and from different perspectives. Are you sort of of that train of thought?
1: I don't know. I haven't I guess I I'm not that systematic about thinking about it. So, but I think it's quite it's quite possible. I suppose I mean, I think we all have our different things we get accept, sort of obsessed with in different ways and sometimes I get very obsessed with certain, like, landscapes or writing off of place. I get very obsessed with place, and I think of those two plays, this is my office, are very particular about locations, and the the mm-hmm. play I'd written, Don't You Fucking Say a Word, is set in a tennis court, very specific, and even the book I'm writing in some sense, I think that Mississippi as a place, past and present, has been very strong, so... I think, yes, probably within though there probably are some bigger stories that we're all telling, but I guess for me, my way in has been a little bit through some kind of resonant location, and sometimes those are literal, sometimes those are more psychic, I guess.
0: Yeah, earlier you mentioned language and landscape, and I didn't know whether you meant landscape literally, but I guess that is what you mean, literally. So... Interesting. So when you're inspired, you you would say normally you're inspired either by someone's actual diction, like language people are using, or the physical place that you're in or that you hear about or whatever it is. That's really interesting. So you feel like when you're inspired, the language comes first before the ideas, even? Like, it's not like you sit down and say, I'm going to write a play about family. It's more like, oh, I heard my mother saying this interesting thing the other day.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of times I just write down language, and that will sort of lead me to care. I mean, I think character may be embedded in that, but I think you find something about, like, I guess the language of my mother was certainly very vivid in my head. Language of the playground was very very much in my head, but also the location, the feeling, and the smell of it. And, And this is my office... Was very much inspired by that location in other words before my father even entered that play i was very inspired by i think it started with being in this weird empty lorman cultural council office this sort of half abandoned giant space and i started wandering through and imagining writing a play for that space and then that brought my father in because my father worked in offices and he had passed away you know two or three years before I'd written the play so I didn't know I was going to be writing about him and but the space kind of brought him there.
0: Were you always writing down language that you heard that you found interesting like even when you were young and you had just started writing?
1: I wonder I don't I don't I don't know if I was uh that much. Mm-hmm. I certainly I mean I it, maybe we all do though I mean when my my daughter tells me stories now, or I may tell her stories, but she does it the other way, there's sometimes she has some real fun with language, and I'm like, oh, something is kind of, from the book she's reading, from the ways she's seeing the world, there are these funny little turns of phrase that I see her enjoying, that that I'm certainly enjoying. So there's something, I think especially in a, most people, I guess, or certainly in my family, a family of readers, the way language is a way in. I think also the sort of, My mother as a Southerner and a Mississippian, they speak in a very particular and strange and, I mean, almost, I don't know what the word is for it, uh, a little over-the-top way or something, a dramatic way. So I think that certainly informed how I heard or write language down.
0: It seems like a lot of your work is connected to New York, and we mentioned earlier you're from New York, as am I. Do you think that's the location you will be returning to many times? I mean, what is that New York magic to you that you just have to communicate via stage?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, in a way, it's a small town for me, because I live across the street from where I grew up. I've been, you know, yeah, I mean, literally, I, I can see the the window of the room I grew up in from our bedroom window now and I've been in this neighborhood even before I got into this before we got into this apartment I was always in the neighborhood aside from like brief times leaving for school or something so I have a real connection to this place know the place that was there before the place and the place and people neighborhood. so it feels like a small town to me in some sense and of course I, I love the city, and I think, you know, you watch it over years and decades go through some changes, some that are very good, some that maybe seem less good. And so it is a kind of character in my life, and it's a place that I love, and sometimes when I feel it's threatened by, you know, be it economic things or climate or whatever, I, I feel, you know, I feel quite protective of it in some way, so... I guess part of what I've written about, certainly in earlier cycles of play, is a kind of sense of the middle-class city that I grew up in, growing up middle-class. My mother was a teacher watching in some ways that sort of city of civil servants, that that's the city that I know inside me and that I hold on to. I'm in middle-income housing right now. So that's, that's just a part of me. And so I do think about where that city is and how that city continues and what's changed a lot.
0: I'm sure you've witnessed huge changes, even just on your block that you're describing. I definitely feel like that that New York is sort of gone that you're talking about. Are you that pessimistic about it as well? No,
1: I'm not actually. I don't I'm not. <laughs> I really That's good. I'm not pessimistic about it. It's so huge here, there's so much scope that I feel like the the city always finds ways to renew itself and be reborn and I think there's a lot of continuity too because, you know, it does feel like a lot has changed but there's also people who've been here for 60 years I know people who hold on to that and of course between Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, the Bronx there's so many parts and so many versions of it that even though some particular small versions may feel frustrating and troubling at the moment I think in the big picture it's just too dynamic and alive I mean, maybe in the scale of centuries we're in trouble, but Venice was too. But I imagine that Venice for the for a long period of time was pretty great.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you have a driver's license?
1: I do. I, I'm terrible, though. I, I, I owned a car once for about a, a month and a half, and I managed to crash it in a one-car accident in 95. So, yeah. Nice, do you, do you have, nice. Do you have a license?
0: I have one. I'm in a similar boat, though. I mean, I think I've driven, like, probably total like 10 hours in my life so I'm, I'm not good you would not want to get it but I always ask I mean everyone always asks me that and the native New Yorker is, is, is a small breed and people are fascinated by that aspect of it and you know there are tons of artists that focus solely on New York so you're in you're in good company there speaking of which do you have any writers it can be playwrights specifically or just writers in general whose work you are inspired by or return to or see as a model for your own
1: I mean there are there are all sorts of amazing writers who I'm enjoying and I mean in terms of novelists I guess Balenio Canalsgard or some I mean there like, I can't even think of them all off the top of my head but I mean Sarah Rule has been a, a friend and mentor. I love her work. Greg Moss.
0: I noticed she wrote the foreword in, in this version of your plays that I read. And so that was fun to see.
1: She did. And we've been friends for 25 years. I love Gregory S. Moss's work. Thomas Bradshaw. Annie Baker. Carol Churchill. There are, there are all sorts of writers. I mean, I think there are a lot of really great plays being written right now so and I do read a lot of I read some experimental fiction I guess I'm trying to think of what I'm reading right now but sort of all over the map I I try to consume everything I guess for for what it's worth
0: do you teach playwriting at Barnard
1: I do I do I teach uh, playwriting
0: and so what is how is that class structured I never took a playwriting class in college is it like you read the great American plays and then write what you want, how does a class like that work?
1: Yeah, it's more, we read a few different writers in the first half of the semester. It could be Rule, it could be Terrell McCraney, it could be Susan Laurie Parks, or Jorge Ignacio Cortina is another writer whose work I love. So a bunch of these writers, we read some of this work, a little Ayo Gawa is another writer who's terrific, has got a play coming to Lincoln Center this fall. And we do little formal exercises in the first half of the semester, kind of restrictive exercises. Like I set some rules and boundaries for them. So these are short exercises they do every week. And then in the second half of the semester, they usually write uh, one-act plays. And then I have some thesis students who write longer plays over the course of a semester for their last semester there.
0: We've been saying all these different names of various plays. Do you feel like there are so many right now that we can't really make statements about what kinds of plays people are writing right now. I guess what I mean to ask is, how do you think playwriting has changed over the course of your career?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard to say because my, my sort of my nose is almost too close to the ground for it. But I think that there's, I mean, I think certainly television has influenced in a good way, and that some writing is sort of really getting uh, a little more spare and in some interest, sparse in some interesting ways. I mean, there's certain writers who have a huge influence on other writers. You could say Rule has had a huge influence on a lot of writers. I think Susan Laurie Parks has had a huge influence on a lot of writers. So you can trace back, I mean, you could go back a generation earlier, you could say that Albie had a huge influence on writers, or Shepard, Vogel coming out of certain traditions. So I, I can't really put my finger on a particular place for it. I do think that, I mean, I'm less interested in, and maybe everyone has been saying this for 30 years, in plays that are really foregrounding issues as opposed to plays that are sort of set in a politicized landscape or theatrically heightened in some way to get at that and letting the politics come through that. I'm a big fan of the writers of the 70s. I love Guerre, I love Fornes. I love Shepard. And I, any other, I'll be a bunch of those writers. I found that they in some way provided my original education reading their work.
0: Hmm what kinds of stuff do you collaborate with with John Ellis? I'm curious, is that like plays with music? What are you experimenting with there?
1: Well, we've done a few things. He's had commissions from a place called the Jazz Gallery and generally we've worked in different ways. They've been kind of almost like jazz operas. I've been writing a libretto for them. Mm-hmm. I think the first one we did was a bunch of poems that he sort of wrote, responded to with music. The second one was a piece called The Ice Siren that we wrote together where we tried to write something that was uh, Kind of imagining almost like a Tim Burton kind of nightmare. And I I wrote words for it. We kind of I came up with the story and wrote the words, and he put music to that. And then and then our third piece called Mobro, we we built it together and it was based. there was a famous garbage barge in the 1980s that left New York with a bunch of garbage to bring it to North Carolina, but they wouldn't let it land. So it sailed to New Orleans, Belize, Mexico, and it kept getting turned down before coming back to Staten Island and getting burned, but we sort of personified the garbage, and we wrote this, came up with this story together with words and music happening at the same time. It had, I think, five singers and eight musicians, so those were really wonderful collaborations. John's a great friend. They were, you know, performed multiple times and then recorded and released, which was exciting, and we haven't worked together on anything for a while just cuz of scheduling and such but those were really enormously fun for me and i think hearing how how music brings emotions to things is so wonderful
0: totally i mean i come from musical theater land so i have my <laughs> own you know uh, opinions and and soft spot for the way music and and speech can work together so that's exciting and I personally think that we're moving in a direction where people are are not poo-pooing musical theater as much which I think is good but to step off my soapbox for a second do you have any advice for young playwrights or even just people who are interested in becoming a playwright who may be listening
1: yeah, I think most of it is the sort of stuff you already know, which is read everything, go see a lot, and I think find your collaborators, which is not, in other words, I think it's not about looking up high for someone who's established. It's about finding the people whom you know and sort of rising together in concentric circles and and, and making things. I guess the other thing I would say is like, one thing that Emily Morrison, you talks about is like, don't ask for permission. Don't wait for someone to choose you And this idea that the industry is going to sort of take care of the industry, it's not the industry's job. The industry is simply doing what it needs to do to survive and make work. And people will find your work. But I think you can't wait to be chosen. You need to make your own work and do what's important to you and let that lead you forward as opposed to what you perceive as the prestigious thing.
0: Yeah, I think that's really true. I'm glad you mentioned that collaboration do you and clearly I mean you started this theater company probably with that in mind you must view the relationship between playwright and probably director as one of the most fruitful and and sacred relationships in the theater do you constantly seek directors that are sort of on the same page with you or do you feel like you have your conglomeration of people that you've worked with before and you sort of keep them in your toolbox
1: well, I think I'm always looking to meet new collaborators and new directors, because I think everyone's very busy, especially if you're working as I probably am or will be again working on a smaller scale if I'm doing it independently. You want to work with people who are have the the time and the energy to do that. So I think there are a lot of really interesting younger artists out there and so I'm trying to sort of continue to expand my network and sort of figure out different models for working Does every, you know, what does it mean? Does every show need to be done on a equity contract over a month and a half? Maybe there's something different. Maybe a show is actually just uh, five performances. Maybe it's non-union or non-actors in a different venue Why am I, you know, all these things that are sort of assumed in what a production is going to be, either through an institution or on your own. I'm trying to sort of define ways to, I guess, especially in the post-COVID time, I'm trying to think of ways to think outside of the assumed ways of working. And I, I haven't figured that out yet or what that actually means, but that I'm trying to be really open to thinking differently as opposed to sort of assuming I know what I know.
0: Yeah, I think we're, we are in an exciting moment in the industry right now in that way because I think many people are having those conversations and with themselves and with others and trying to think outside the box, how can we do this? I'm curious because this has come up every time I've, I've worked on a new play or a new musical. What do you see as the role of the playwright in the room when the play is being worked Shopped or worked on
1: well I think with a lot of the directors I've worked with I've had a chance to workshop the play beforehand yeah. uh, so we've been in conversation I think it's just a continuing if you've been in conversation with the director for a while and you've had some more direct conversations beforehand you're and you have confidence in that director which hopefully if you're working with him you do then I think your role is to mostly work through them and your voice I mean you can when you're asked you can certainly offer a a personal perspective on a play. I'm not silent in the room, but I'm not antagonistic. I'm there, I think. The director is certainly running that room, and I am occasionally offering things. They are building... It's not simply that they know how to talk to actors. I can talk to actors, too, but I also think... that's not only that they're finding constructive ways to talk to actors. They're also... I think a great director almost is like building, building towards opening, so it's like they're aware of the process, so... Not everything, mm-hmm. you want to peak at a certain point. So they're giving certain kinds of information earlier, and they're giving more information later. So I want to respect their process. And then certainly after rehearsal, we may be in conversation about questions we each have. I think the, a lot of the great directors I've worked with have been very smart about cuts as well. And the work they do often, their work is good enough that I'm able to cut away from the script and lose... of what's already there because they find a way to bring that to the table. So that's a lot of my work too.
0: Totally. I was going to ask this earlier, but I think I got off track. I definitely think of, when I think of like, what is a playwright or even just a writer in general, I think of it as a very solitary experience. Like you sit on your laptop or however you write and you write by yourself. And then that's, sort of it. Is that your experience of it? Is it lonely? Or because of playwriting where you're you're producing these new plays of yours and you're in the room, you find it more collaborative?
1: Well, I, I think I love collaborating. I think there are a couple different ways that it feels collaborative. One is if you do a workshop, and New Dramatists was great for that, and I'm, I'm sad that my time there, my residency has come to an end because it was wonderful. I did workshop a lot of stuff. And sometimes informally, I'll get together and hear stuff. I'm also part of a a writer's group, which has been wonderful. We call it the Pickle Council because we have to bring pages or pickles or little problems. So Sarah is part of it, among other people. And we all are in different sort of moments in our career. And we have different challenges and different things we're working on. But that, especially during uh, COVID, that was amazing. And I think one of the reasons I wrote this manuscript, this, this work that started working on this book is because I we were meeting every week on Zoom at that point. We were all in different places at the time. And so I could bring in, I would bring in 10, 15 pages a week just as something to, to work on and, and be able to share that and be in conversation with him. It really was like a something to hold on to for all. So it doesn't, it does feel, yeah, in some ways it's solitary, but I think in the end, it's also a very social profession.
0: Yeah. So on this is very into the nitty gritty you sort of talked about your process before but i'm I'm just genuinely very curious so if you're like i'm working on a new play and let's say you have this writer's group and you want to bring in 10 to 15 pages each week so does that mean it's like 8 a.m and you open up your laptop and you're like here i am and then you just write from 8 a.m until like 5 p.m. like what is a typical day and I think people are curious about this because that is our conception of what being a writer is if you are not a writer
1: yeah I think it varies I think some days you do quite a bit of work I mean and some days you don't like today I dropped my kid off at school and I went to the uh, NYU library because I teach there and uh, happily it was mostly empty because uh
0: finals finals are over yeah so
1: i got one of those little private rooms in the sub basement and i and i worked on rewrites for four hours and that's because i have a kind of thing i'm trying to finish right now some days i mean that there's a kind of ideal if you can put in a few hours work and you feel pretty good about yourself i mean with teaching and family schedules vary but yeah if i if i said i'm gonna bring in 10 pages i would probably you know work on it for a few hours, put it aside for a couple of days, maybe work on something else or something else, and come back to it. Because once a little time will allow me to make cuts and sort of find out what I'm writing. And I find that I, it's not steady. I work in spurts. I mean, there are plenty of other things to work on. So I, I, I feel like I work pretty hard, but not like a clear... It's not the kind of work fantasy of like, I work nine to five and I can have a martini at the end or something or whatever it is, but I mean, no one does that anymore, but somebody does. Some people some do. People, it's a <laughs> yeah, little it's yeah, hard on yeah. the body, but no, I just, I think thinking of it as a practice a little bit, I mean, in the same sense, so like anything else, some people do yoga. I I run regularly, I jog regularly, and I find that they're actually similar and that I I need to be continuing some days I feel better than other days but I need to be on a regular basis working to get anywhere and also that allows me to forgive myself if I do if what I work on isn't very good because I might have a bad day or week or or month or year for that matter but hopefully if one persists you get to something interesting eventually.
0: Yeah I think that's really true I imagine I mean certainly uh, I've Have done a bunch of different kinds of writing but for me it's like it's always been I'd rather have something than nothing because you could always you know edit it you could end up totally rewriting it but as long as I spit something out onto the page I always feel a million times better so I think that's very good advice I I want to end with my ending segment that I do with All my guests and it's called the thank you five segment as in thank you five minutes thank you places and it's five rapid-fire questions so just answer off the top of your head whatever comes to your mind it's a lot of favorites which I know people don't like so if it's multiple or you don't want to answer that's totally fine too so first of all do you have a favorite playwright living or dead Like, this could be Shakespeare, I suppose.
1: I suppose it could be. I love John Guare.
0: I've actually never read any John Guare.
1: Landscape of the Body is amazing. Some of his shorter plays. I think he's written some really great plays along the way.
0: Do you have a top five favorite plays of all time? Similar question.
1: Ah, wow. I, hmm. I think about some plays I teach. I love I love Fefu and her friends. There's so many, I mean, wonderful plays that I've seen or I'm trying to think. Wallace Shawn. I, I love Wallace Shawn's work. And
0: Amazing. I saw him speak when I was in college and it was really inspiring.
1: Yeah, Grasses of a Thousand Colors. These plays are so weird and wild. I, I admire him. He, he really gets into craziness.
0: Which is the beauty of Playwriting in many ways. This one's fun. The best and worst thing about starting your own theater company.
1: I think the best thing is that you can take the lead, so when you screw up, you don't feel resentful. You just blame yourself, and that's a kind of great thing to just feel like it ends. The buck stops with you, and you're responsible. I mean, I think the worst thing is that it 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 takes a lot out of you. It gets you, you it just you, you get very distracted and almost manic and you, I, I should say, I get a little distracted and manic in the middle of it. And that is hard. It's a real come down when it's over. It's a real roller coaster. So emotionally and psychologically, it's such a crazy journey, I guess. And maybe that's the worst and the best thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine it's like starting any business venture on your own, which has you know, pluses and minuses and as you say the buck stops with you. So, if something goes wrong, it's bad, but if something goes right, it's it can be only good. And this is a very feeder nerd question. Three acts or 90 minutes no intermission?
1: I think to pull off three acts, you would better write a heck of a play cuz you got to bring him back twice. So, I mean, there are plays with enormous scope that that off. I haven't ridden one of those yet, so I feel like 90 Minutes No Intermission for most of us mortals is probably the most realistic at this point in time.
0: And as an audience member, of course, as you say, unless you know there's Angels in America, which I'll come back for in two parts, but as an audience member, you know, I see the 90 Minutes No Intermission on the playbill and I'm like, yes, time for the martini afterwards. Yes. And lastly, you can take this either metaphorically or literally, a playwright's essential. So it could be like a pencil or it could be like determination, whatever it is that you identify with.
1: A playwright's necessity. Patience, I think.
0: It's a good one. No one has said patience because I I vary this in actors, essential, dancers, essential, whatever it is. Patience. Why, Why do you think a playwright in particular needs patience?
1: Because I think you, you know, you have to be patient both with yourself as a writer in the process of individual plays and in the scope of a career. You have to be patient with sort of theaters and collaborators because everything always takes longer than you think. I think you have to be patient in a rehearsal process because sometimes it you know you may think you need to cut something or you may be freaking out about what it not feeling right but sometimes you need to let it emerge so just general patience and equanimity to sort of let it let it all emerge
0: yeah and i think that speaks to what we sort of alluded to earlier that the circuitous path of the playwright i mean you need to you're dependent on residencies and fellowships and teaching and all these other things in, in order to make these things happen. So I agree that that seems to require patience, but it's it's a great, if you love it, it's a, it's a great career. All right, Andy, this was such a great uh, conversation. Is there anything you feel like i've missed or that you really want to discuss or plug
1: not really i guess you know i have this book out so i would plug that with northwestern university press this is my office and notes my mother's decline. two plays so i'd be remiss if i didn't plug that and uh, other than that and
0: I'd... it was great loved it
1: thank you thank you so much and that's it i'm really appreciative of the time to have a chat with you it was fun
0: Yes, thank you so much. Yes, everyone. I encourage everyone to order or purchase this. This is my office and notes on my mother's decline, two of Andy's latest plays, and when do you think? Do you have a title for your nonfiction book? Uh,
1: it's called yes. Mosley, and it's at, that's my middle name, and that's the sort of name going way back in the family. So, I I'm just finishing. I have not sold it yet, so who knows.
0: We'll stay tuned for that and obviously for any other plays that come about. And thank you so much for chatting with us today. It was really a great uh, chat. And thank you, Call Time listeners, as always. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more episodes.